0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Compliance Clarified podcast. I'm Lindsay Rogerson, a Senior Editor for Regulatory Intelligence in London, and I'm here with my colleague and fellow Senior Editor, Rachel Wolcott, for a special episode of the podcast for International Women's Day. Sad to say, but as we celebrate International Women's Day in 2023, we see little progress with women in finance, and we have heard some fairly grim stories from women working in risk and compliance in preparing for this podcast. Today, we're going to talk about some of those real life experiences, as well as what is and what isn't working, and why regulators should reconsider diversity and inclusion programs. We are joined today by Dr Louise Ashley of Queen Mary University's London School of Business and Management and the Centre for Research on Equality and Diversity. Louise was a working group member of the City of London Corporation's Task Force on Socioeconomic Diversity and is also advised on government social mobility initiatives. Louise has spent a decade researching diversity and inclusion programs in the City of London. Her book, Highly Discriminating, Why the City Isn't Fair and Diversity Doesn't Work is based on interviews with more than 400 city leaders and workers. Welcome Louise. So to kick off, Rachel has been combing through the FCA register, looking for women in SMF four, five, 16 and 17 roles. Rachel, please share what you have found and perhaps start with a recap on what jobs lie behind those SMF numbers.
2: Hi, everybody. Uh, Happy International Women's Day. So SMF4 uh, in uh, UK financial services terms is the chief risk officer. SMF5 is the head of internal audit. SMF16 is the head of compliance. And SMF17 is uh, the money laundering officer. So I looked at 21 uh, banks, on uh, the FCA register and their various uh, subsidiaries in asset management securities dealing um, functions. And so it was a cohort of 127 SMF 4, 5, 16 and 17s across these 21 brands. And what I found was that to the surprise of no one, 70% of these roles were held by men. But what was a little more uh, surprising was that uh, some firms, such as Monzo, Nationwide Building Society, Morgan Stanley uh, International, and Bank of America, have no women in these SMF roles, in these four SMF roles, and that some banks have a very low representation of women in the in the these senior risk and compliance roles. Um, although there were some uh, outliers on the positive side, like Bank of New York, Mellon, and Metro Bank. They had, in some cases, 75% women in these roles. So that that is great. But this is only telling part of the story because what the FCA's gender diversity score shows is that of the authorized positions in UK financial services, only 17% of those roles are held by women. So, what we have is slightly more uh, female represent- representation in these high ranking risk and compliance roles. But when it comes to financial services more broadly, there are very few women in authorized roles. And to top that off, uh, we spent some time. Uh, recently talking to women in risk and compliance roles and women from minority ethnic backgrounds. And they had some pretty hard to hear messages and stories about their experiences in um, financial services and in risk and compliance. And this ranged from Just like racist bullying, um, being undermined by uh, male senior managers, being publicly berated in front of colleagues, um, having their work undermined, and not being able to get their message across, you know, in terms of risk management policies and the things that they were supposed, basically what they were brought in to do their job for in the first place, Um, When it came to embedding uh, risk management uh, policies, uh, once they determined something, some of the times it was taken out of their hands and, you know, changed and watered down and they thought that was wrong. Having said all that, Louise, welcome. And how does what I've just been talking about fit or not fit in with what you've been finding in your work? Hi there, Rachel. Well, unfortunately,
0: it fits in quite well with what I find in my work. So I should say here that I look um, in my research across the city. So I look at finance and asset management, but also a sort of corporate law firms and accountancy and investment banks. And although we do see differences within and between those different occupations, there are certain similarities as well. And one of those is that although we do have more women entering those organisations and those jobs, Um, We do see their concentration in particular roles often and also their underrepresentation at the most senior levels as well. Um, And that's fairly consistent. So that's sort of the quantitative story. That's the numbers. But we can also think about the more kind of qualitative side of that, if you like. So the experiences of women. And again, although it's difficult to generalise and this can vary quite a lot, I think the sorts of experiences... The sort of marginalisation and sometimes that kind of term microaggressions, all that kind of thing does seem to be still quite prevalent um, in particular organisations as well.
2: Yes, it does. And that's definitely what I found when I was speaking to women uh, in the run up to this uh, podcast and some Women's Day coverage that we're doing. I mean... We've talked about, and you talk about it in your book, how a lot of time, money, and effort has been spent on women in finance initiatives, D&I, or diversity and inclusions, and how that's sort of under-delivered so far, and led to many people questioning whether these targets are delivering in diversity of thought and, and cognitive uh, diversity. W- what have you been finding when you've looked at some of these uh, gender and uh, diversity and inclusion programs?
0: Yeah, so the first thing I would say is um, these kind of programmes can be helpful. I think they're often really well intentioned and there's an awful lot of people in the city and elsewhere who are putting a lot of effort um, into the sorts of changes that we would like to see. So I think it's really important to start by saying that. And I think those kind of programmes can definitely draw attention to some of the issues. They can focus minds and they do drive perhaps some sort of incremental change. One of the issues, though, that I try to address is that they don't always drive the sort of underlying Cultural and structural changes to organisations, which would enable many more women to reach the very top jobs, and I suppose um, perhaps the less comfortable thing to say about this is that in a sense they're not really meant to. So what I argue is that to some extent, at least, these kind of org- these kind of programmes are driven by by reputational concerns, if you like, and that can engender a fairly cosmetic response again that's not always um, it's not always deliberate or it's not strategic it 's not always planned but it's also not that that surprising because if the problem you 're trying to solve is one primarily of reputation rather than for example underlying inequalities then it's quite likely to drive that more superficial effect and I think we'll come on to that in more detail in a minute but what that can mean in practice is that although there's often an emphasis on diversity and on difference what that means is in practice is that people um are expected to assimilate to whatever the sort of dominant norm of organizations is and that can be very difficult and quite exhausting a lot of the time
2: yeah and that also undermines the cognitive diversity piece that if you're absolutely assimilating people who are meant to be bringing diversity of thought to your firm <laughs> there's going to be no diversity of thought yeah. lindsay what about what you've been finding?
3: Yeah, thanks, Rach. So I just want to share a couple of examples from conversations I've had in the in the last year um, and both actually show awareness from women in senior roles that um, there is an issue in terms of that, getting that diversity of life experience and retaining that in a firm. So one was a senior woman um, uh, talking at a conference um, uh, and she said you know if you look at me you think i'm diverse and i i bring that diversity but actually if you look at my educational background i'm not i'm not that i'm no different from um you, you know the a traditional financial hire um and the other one was um a senior again a very senior woman talking about some work they had done at their firm um to try and get the senior management to um engage in it with uh sort of this initiative that they had for um to bring in people from less affluent uh backgrounds um and you know she, she basically said she had her head in her hands after all this work when the first question that one of them asked was so where did you go skiing last year <laughs> you know um so I just, you know, so there is there is awareness, and I think that you know, accepting that there is an issue, um, is is important if you are going to make progress. And so, I, I'm just wondering how that um sits with your work, Louise, and and then what we can actually do to um move things forward.
0: Yeah, so there's um, there's a lot going on there. And this is, a, this is clearly, I mean, it goes without saying, really, this is an incredibly complex issue with so many different factors feeding into it. And sometimes when we think about DNI, um, we call it what's known as a wicked problem. Um, so it's a problem that's really difficult to solve. Not everyone just knows or agrees what the problem is, or even that there always is a problem. And that's definitely one of the issues or the difficulties that we have here. There's also something um, relating to your points, Lindsay, about professionalism both sort of narrowly and broadly defined. And that is that um, professionalism is often quite closely associated with standardisation. So the ideas within professionalism, if we are professional, we standardise around particular kind of rules and norms. And that can be really important in relation to our service to clients, because standardisation is reassuring. It reduces perceived risks on behalf of both the advisor and the person receiving the advice. Um, and we tend to be really concerned about risk here. I think risk kind of individual and organisational is really, really important when we, think, when we think about who we appoint and who we, we promote. Um, so kind of standardisation around particular norms, if you like, is a way of reducing um, perceived risks. Now, the notion there, the conceit, if you like, is that we have sort of only standardised around fairly neutral kind of rules of norms of behaviour or ways of doing things. But what I'd also argue is that we sort of we've standardised around the body of the middle class white man who is still even now seen as a sort of the norm for the city for finance and elsewhere. And anybody who kind of deviates from that norm is seen is in some sense um, has to work harder in a sense to prove their expertise, to prove their value, to prove their worth. And so we see those sorts of processes coming through, I think, very clearly in relation to sort of both appointments, but particularly
2: promotion into those really senior roles. Can we talk about um, what you're what you're seeing in your interviews? What what actually happens when city firms, be they law firms or financial services firms, try to bring in people from ethnic minority backgrounds or from uh, lower income backgrounds?
3: I, I think it would be helpful at this point, Rachel, just to share one of the um, one of the quotes that's in. Um... Louise's book, uh, which we'll put the link to in the show notes for anyone that is interested. Um, And it's by um, someone who you call Michelle. It's really quite, um, I think it speaks to the issue very well. What those people have been telling you about diversity is just the corporate crap that everybody vomits from their mouths. If you interviewed me before, I probably would have said all those things. But now that I've actually been in the bank and seen it, I kept saying to my friends over the summer, I have been sold dreams. It's really, really um heart-wrenching to 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 read that. Yeah.
2: People's expectations didn't act, meet up with the what actually happens.
0: Yeah, I think it's probably go, it's useful to go back to Stephen Batts, contextualize that quote. So Michelle was some DU I interviewed, a young woman I interviewed, who'd come through um a kind of social mobility program that was designed um to open access to Um, top jobs in the city in finance and elsewhere. And these programmes, I'm 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 hugely supportive of them, they can be incredibly useful. But what tends to happen within them is that young people who come from underrepresented backgrounds, um, perhaps less advantaged backgrounds, they tend to get sold a narrative of merit. So they tend to be told that if they come into these organisations, their their ethnicity, their social background, um, their gender won't matter. And then when they sort of encounter mainstream recruitment and selection programmes, or even sometimes if they get into these organisations, many of them find that that's not quite true or even that it's very far from the truth. And that can be really um, incredibly disillusioning. It can be quite psychologically difficult because, as kind of Michelle points out, people feel like they've been sold a lie. And what then tends to happen is as they seek to navigate entry routes, as they seek to navigate their careers, they do feel these incredibly strong pressures to, um, to assimilate to dominant norms in order to make themselves what I call feel like legitimate city workers. And that question of legitimacy really, um, it goes to the heart of what we're talking about here um, Because what I try to do in my research is to understand the root cause of inequalities, to understand their political purpose, and why we see these sort of conflicting narratives. So on the one hand, this emphasis on merit, but on the other, this kind of reality of ongoing exclusion. And I kind of center that around issues of legitimacy, which perhaps we could discuss in
2: more detail. Another example from your book is a woman who comes into an internship program and she's being told uh, about, you know, meritocracy, you work hard, you get ahead. And then uh, another person who's a male, who's the son of a uh, big private equity executive gets a job right right away and doesn't actually have to do any, you know, do anything. He's not judged on merit at all. Um, but what one of the things uh, that you were talking about In the article that was on the conversation, and obviously in your book, is that you're really looking behind and unpicking some of the foundational thinking about uh, diversity and inclusion programs, and you argue that these issues are structural now, and that DNI is part of that structure. So it's not just the people who are being asked to assimilate; it's this. The way that financial services and law firms are going at this problem is very much in a way that suits their purposes.
0: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and this is a another. I say this all the time. This is a complex set of processes. But again, I think it it what well, it helps to it helps to think about the narratives around this a little bit. So we've just been talking about merit and meritocracy, and one thing we can do is remember. What that narrative of merit does for organisations, not just in the city and elsewhere, but but also elsewhere, and what merit does is it suggests to people, con- internal and external stakeholders, that access to the rewards that you offer is available on the basis of entirely objective factors. So on the basis of exceptional skill or incredible or, or and incredible hard work, and if you can convince people. Um, that that's how you recruit and how you promote it means you can justify your rewards um, on the basis that they are kind of fairly allocated and justly deserved. Now that meritocratic narrative has been incredibly important for city firms over the last 30-40 years um, as a means to justify what are often quite exceptional rewards. It's been really important that they are able to say, yep, these are these are these people who are earning a lot of money, but they are able to, anybody can get these jobs on the basis of talent and skill. Now, that's been the narrative, as I say, but alongside that, what we've seen is these sort of ongoing exclusive um, recruitment and promotion techniques. And they offer, if you like, a different source of legitimacy. So that exclusivity offers organisation status their ways in a way, um, exclusivity is a way to preserve or project the prestige or value of particular work. Um, and one way that we can do that to kind of, if we want to raise the status of our work, if you like, is to attach it to high status people. So in other words, people with the highest status social identities um, in our society, that tends to be white middle class men, tend to lend their status to the work that they do. And so jobs that are most associated with people who have those high status social identities tend to have the highest status. When they diversify, they tend to lose that status and that prestige, the perceived value of the work goes down. And we see that repeatedly um, when organisations or occupations feminise, I should say. Now, that's really important to your question. I know that was a rather long winded answer. But it's really important to your question, because once we understand that, we understand that diversification comes with perceived risks, and then we start to understand a little better why it might be resisted. And one of the points I argue is that diversity and inclusion agendas tend to try and manage those competing demands, if you like. So they tend to do enough to help secure a meritocratic reputation. But not so much that they um, threaten to undermine status and profitability. And that's why we tend to get stuck at particular points, I would argue, in that kind of DNI journey, um, because we're kind of managing those competing demands quite carefully. That happens in incredibly subtle ways, I should say. Again, it's not always deliberate, but I think it helps us to understand in more depth sort of the underlying purpose or function of DNI agendas, which in turn helps us understand why they don't work as
3: well as we might hope. That's really interesting, Louise. Thank you. I'm just wondering what conclusions you came to um, in the course of your book and the, uh, the course of a decade's worth of research. That How do, how do you change that underlying structural uh, problem that you're talking about?
0: Yeah, thanks, Lisa. I mean, that's a really big question. And what I should say is that um, in my book, I tried to look at this on more than one level. So in one sense, what I'm doing, when I talk about why the city isn't fair, I'm talking about some wider questions. So the kind of wider questions I'm looking at are the kind of rewards that are enjoyed by people at the very, very top of the city, the most kind of highly remunerated and those kind of top jobs. And those are significant in part because those sorts of rewards and the practices that go along with them probably drive wider inequalities in society um, and they can therefore be quite problematic. And so I'm looking at at the book overall about how those very exceptional rewards are justified. And my argument really there is that they're justified on the basis that they're meritocratic, that the people in those jobs are exceptionally talented and exceptionally hardworking. And I question that narrative. That's kind of one purpose of my book, to kind of ask whether that's actually the case and whether people in these jobs are more talented or harder working than people in much lower paid roles. So that's kind of one side of the argument. But if we take that down to a more granular level to look at kind of why diversity isn't working, my argument really there is that, and, and this leads on to what we could do instead, is that we often kind of focus our efforts on the business case. So we argue that there's a business case for diversity um, in terms of kind of more productivity, more high performance, better profitability. And of course, that's partly true. But it's not entirely true, as i just tried to explain. There's also a business case against diversity and inclusion and in favour of the status quo. So in other words, the market does not always drive equality, however much we like to think it does. And that's really significant um, for what we can do next. So the kind of big conclusion from that is that really a voluntary diversity and inclusion agenda driven by a business case is very unlikely to drive the sort of structural change that would sort of drive meaningful change um, in terms of representation at the top um, it just can't do that it's, it's not it's not weighty or strong enough to do that at the moment so therefore if we do want to see those changes um, we would need to think as sort of more collective actions perhaps stronger regulation those sorts of more muscular interventions if you like that would drive a little bit more meaningful change perhaps at a slightly faster pace But of course, there is a significant question about whether people want to do that kind of thing, because some of those changes might, in fact, be quite costly.
2: Yeah, that came out in a conversation I had recently. Um, The woman I was speaking to uh, who was working in financial services and risk and compliance said that she thought the regulator needed to be more forceful with diversity targets Um, and lay out some rules and some fr- a framework to get more people from di- from different backgrounds and more women into financial services cut across the piece she didn't think that it was going to happen just by these diversity and inclusion programs because you know having lived it and if this is what comes out in your work having lived the diversity and inclusion program uh she still found that she was being told point blank, either by a recruiter or a head of HR, that your talents were the same, if not better as this man who we interviewed for the role, but we're just more comfortable going with the man. And she wasn't really sure why, why, How that could be the case and she did say that maybe people look at me and they think they can't trust me or like you say they think they're taking a risk hiring somebody that doesn't look like them which seems ridiculous Um, but it also kind of puts paid to this um, kind of this thing that you also bring up which is this um, phony war for talent and making it seem like you have to have all these super special skills to get ahead in the city.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. And 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 of course sometimes you do. So, I, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting that's not the case. I think on the trust thing, um something really important there is that we we tend to think that we can or maybe we do, sometimes we think that we can generate trust. Um, based on kind of what we know. So if we have the credentials or the qualifications, that will be sufficient to convince people of our authority or our expertise. But sociologically, what we also know is that expertise and knowledge is read off our social identity as well. So again, in very, very crude terms, um, white middle-class men have been vested with more authority as a result of historical stereotypes over many decades. And therefore, again, generalising, but on average, they have to do least to convince other people of their expertise and their knowledge. And the further you can get away from that identity, the more, the harder you have to work um, in order to kind of generate an impression of expertise and knowledge and trust. And that's one reason why people who are, in a sense, considered diverse or considered def- different use kind of credentials and qualifications as a way to sort of bypass that so-called authority gap, um, which which can be more or less successful, is also why we tend to see more, what's well, one reason why we tend to see more diversity in more technical roles. Um, so in, in the city on average, in more technical roles where performance can be more objectively measured, we tend to see more tolerance for diversity Um, on the basis of social background, ethnicity, perhaps gender. And the more subjective the knowledge base becomes, um, the more kind of that conforming with that dominant norm becomes important um, because in those instances, identity can be used as a proxy for expertise. So that's one of the reasons why we start to see differences between different jobs in the city and at
3: different levels of seniority. That's super interesting. That is really interesting and hopefully something that the regulators will Take on board. Obviously, they are still working on their program, which Rachel and I have reported on. Um, they're looking at how they would measure diversity uh, and including socioeconomic diversity, um, you know, and barriers to um, diversity in in all forms. Um, and so that's quite interesting. You know, the objective measures, and maybe they should look at you know the areas in um, in banks in, you know, in asset managers where there is more um, diversity and, you know, as you say, the technical roles and then seek to have some read across. I think, you know, that would uh, be an interesting piece of work um, to do. It seems like there's a, a difference
2: between what you know. So what you know in some roles can put you in good stead and push you forward, hopefully. But when it comes to roles where it might be who you know, like sales or uh wealth management for example uh some of the traditional characteristics would be more valued. Lindsay, you were talking earlier about some positive messages. What what do you think are some positive messages to take away?
3: I think um really as you know as I alluded the fact that there is does seem to be self-awareness in certain senior leaders that this is a there is an issue and as Louise said, you know, that we, we shouldn't chuck the baby out with the bathwater. You know, these programs, especially the ones that uh, go into inner city schools, et cetera, and show a path that way, you know, I think they are, as Louise demonstrates, they are good at getting people in the door. It's how you don't lead to the disillusionment that Michelle uh, describes and others describe in, in, in Louise's book. It's 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 how you do that, and you know, and as Louise has just pointed out, you know, maybe objective measurements in performance, um, and remuneration, uh, is is actually a you know a good way, a good place to start. So yeah, I think this has been a fascinating, fascinating discussion, um, Louise, and we just want to throw it over to you to have the last word before we say thank you, um, to. If you could pick one thing, and I know this is a very unfair question, but if you could pick one thing to say to the regulators uh, on this subject, what, what would it be?
0: Oh, gosh, that's a very, very difficult question. But I think from my point of view, I would really encourage regulators to open up the conversations a bit. I think sometimes, as I've mentioned, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we don't really get the discussion of the root cause of inequalities, partly because those discussions are really, really difficult and challenging to have. But if we don't do that, we end up sort of slightly missing the point. So I think it's really important to move from what I call in my book, a sort of position of institutionalised dishonesty. To one in which we're more prepared to discuss what I call more radical truths around DNI, because I think around this time it's it's probably when we start need to start changing the conversation a little bit
2: in order to start moving forward again. Thank you, Louise, for taking the time to speak with us today. I think this is going to bring a lot of uh, new thought and context to the DNI conversation, as well as uh, some. Thing to reflect upon on International Women's Day, which to state the obvious is that we've got a lot of work to do. So thank you again. And that's the conclusion of another episode of Compliance Clarified. Please uh, check out the show notes for links to... Uh, the article Louise wrote in the conversation, the title of her book, and some special coverage that Lindsay and I have prepared for International Women's Day. Thanks. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.